In 2005, Israelis withdrew from Gaza, every soldier, every farmer, every synagogue, every grave. It was an historic land for peace experiment, and it failed. In May, Hamas began firing missiles at Israeli cities, towns, and villages, sparking the fourth armed conflict since Hamas defeated Fatah and began ruling Gaza in 2007. Many in the international media blamed Israel more than Hamas, despite the fact that it was Hamas that attacked, despite the fact that Hamas used human shields, a violation of international and U.S. law, despite the fact that Hamas's intentions toward Israelis are openly and unambiguously genocidal. Jonathan Chanzer, FDD's Senior Vice President for Research, a groundbreaking scholar of Middle Eastern affairs, has now produced the first and so far only book on this conflagration, Gaza Conflict 2021, Hamas, Israel, and 11 Days War. He's with us today, as is Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conricus, who served as the international spokesman for the IDF during the fighting. I welcome them, and I welcome you too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Dr. Shanzer. I'm going to Dr. Shanzer because you both named Jonathan, and I don't want to, and of course, you don't look exactly alike, but anyway. Dr. Shanzer, you wrote and published this book in record time. Tell us why you saddled yourself with such a tight deadline. Well, uh, first, thanks, Cliff, uh, for, for hosting this. And, and Jonathan, great to have you with us today. Um, I've watched Pleasure that war more closely than I watched any other conflict in the you know 30 years that I've been doing this kind of work. And it was interesting. It wasn't, I think, because of uh, a keener interest. It was because of available technology. Uh, through smartphones, smart TVs, I was able to watch uh, Israeli TV in real time as the war unfolded. I was able to watch Arabic language television. Uh, I was able to watch what was coming in on my Twitter feed and to see how the U.S. media was covering it. And I saw a massive disconnect between what was being reported and the analysis of that conflict and what was seen on the ground what the Israelis were dealing with. And specifically, they were dealing with an Iran-backed terrorist organization that was not blamed for really anything uh, during this conflict. I mean, Israel was roundly vilified for its response to the provocation. But I think the, the real moment for me, and this, this I think tracks immediately to uh, Jonathan's presence with us today, the, the greatest disconnect actually took place um, on May 13th, um, and that was when the IDF Twitter feed announced that ground forces were um, in Gaza. And I immediately, when I saw that tweet, 
I went into my family room, I turned on my television here in suburban DC, and I turned it to channel 11 in Israel. And it was very interesting. The, the reporters, the Israeli reporters were saying, we don't see troops going in and we can't confirm this story. So I turned the channel to channel 13 and same thing. The reporters are saying, cannot confirm. None of my sources can say this and uh, we don't know what's going on. There was great confusion. But what really struck me was that the American press, the foreign press ran with the story anyway, did not confirm it. And certainly they were not looking at the Israeli media, which is by far the best at covering this conflict. Um, uh, in other words, they're not airdropped in. These are people that live this day in and day out. And it just dawned on me that there was a massive disconnect between what our reporters write and what is happening on the ground in the Middle East. And that is what prompted me to write the first draft of this in eight days. Right. The American journalism ain't what it used to be. Uh, Colonel Conriquez, before we talk about the conflict, maybe you should just take a moment and tell us how it is that your career path in the military led to your doing hand-to-hand -hand combat with the international press. I mean, wouldn't it have been, I don't know, safer, more pleasant, more fun to be in something like, I don't know, bomb disposal? Yeah, thank you, uh, Cliff and uh, Dr. Uh, Jonathan. Uh, great to be here, thank you. And I, um, I had the good fortune of doing quite a lot of different uh, things in my 24 years of service in the IDF. I started as an infantry soldier and uh, fought in southern Lebanon against Hezbollah, uh, amongst other places, the famous or notorious Bufour castle in southern Lebanon, the former crusade castle. And uh, a few years of fighting there from 1997, approximately, till the Israeli withdrawal in Lebanon, and then as a platoon commander, company commander in infantry. But really, most of my fighting days were in Gaza between 2000 and 2005, uh, before the disengagement that you spoke about in the introduction. And uh, I spent the best part of five years defending Israeli civilians there, fighting different terrorist organizations on the ground, underground, um, Hamas, the resistance committees, Islamic Jihad, they were up and coming then, they weren't really established yet. But um, those years on the ground really gave me the firm foothold or the standing that I thought and felt that I needed in order to be able to represent the IDF and to try to tell our story uh, in the world to the international media and anybody who was interested in listening to our story and at least or at least getting any of our information out. And uh, so I uh, had the good fortune of doing that. I spent or I served three years at the UN, a very interesting position. The first time that the IDF, that the Israeli uh, Defense Forces sent a, an officer to the UN. Uh, so three years of understanding how that organization looks and writes and reports on Israel, not from reading the reports from the outside, but actually being part of the process and seeing the mechanisms from within very interesting and uh, very worrying. <laughs> and if you want, we can uh, elaborate about it. I had a lot of my concerns and fears uh, confirmed, uh, unfortunately. And the last four years of my service as the international spokesperson of the uh, of the IDF, 
Uh, I dealt in social, and uh, basically I oversaw the Twitter and Facebook and all of the other uh, social media accounts. We have about 8 million followers now on all of those accounts uh, together. And of course, being the face and voice of the IDF, as well as public diplomacy, and also uh, reach out and liaison with different think tanks and uh, institutions very much like your own. So yeah, it could have been uh, easier maybe to uh, uh, do something more, you know, pure military and stay with my boots on the ground. But looking back, uh, despite the episode that uh, Jonathan mentioned, which we will speak about, I am uh, very, very happy and very thrilled and grateful to have had the opportunity to present the idea of the way I did. Maybe you, you start with this, Colonel, but Jonathan, I want to hear you too. The Israelis called this round of fighting, the fourth, as I, we said, since, since Hamas took over Gaza, uh, Operation Guardian of the Walls, right? That's what the Israelis called it. Hamas called it the Battle of the Sword of Jerusalem. Does mm -hmm. that tell us anything about how each side viewed the conflict? I think it does. And I think, uh, frankly speaking, that Hamas has always had more creativity and uh, better names for their operations in terms of copyrights. And uh, I think that the name of the operation from a Hamas perspective really tells the story of what Hamas were trying to do. Uh, they started the operation because they wanted to reach out, connect, and to instigate the Palestinians in Judea and Samaria and to get them out to the streets and to cause massive violence. Uh, they almost succeeded. Uh, they succeeded more with Arabs in Israel, I think, than what they did with Palestinians in, in Judea and Samaria, which maybe they were a bit surprised by. And they were, again, uh, I'd say disappointed with the fact that Palestinians in Judea and Samaria voted with their feet and said, well, no, we're, we're, we're okay as we are, and we don't want any of your Hamas adventures. But the name uh, really tells the story of the Hamas strategy, and it also, in, in a way, tells uh, the mindset of the IDF where, yes, we are in a defensive position. I think everybody in, in the IDF, especially those with combat experience and who have served inside the Gaza Strip or participated in any of the four rounds of fighting that we've had, uh, most people, I would probably say, understand the very limited options and the very limited outcomes of military operations, unless you are willing to go all the way and to try to uh, generate some kind of regime change in Gaza. If you're not willing to go all that way, if you're not willing to take the, the, uh, the fallout and the consequences and the casualties on both sides, uh, then I think there's, it's clear, especially for the uh, commanders and officers, that uh, operations in Gaza, they have a very set, and predetermined area of uh, influence. And there are pretty rigid rules as to what happens and what happens as a result, what each side will try to do. And in this operation, that kind of uh, followed along those lines. What I think was interesting uh, this time was that everything happened very, very fast. Our operations started basically with the intensity I think that we rolled four or five days of combat from the 2014 uh, operation into one day. 
of combat in terms of the intensity of our strikes and the amount of ordnance that we delivered on terrorist targets. And so did Hamas. They fired more rockets uh, per day than they have ever done at Israel. And uh, looking ahead, I think that's a clear indication of what lies ahead if, again, things spiral out of control and if Hamas would think that that, that uh, military operations will gain them anything, then probably we will see very intense military operations. Uh, again, international pressure on Israel, the outcry and international pressure fueled by international media. And we will see, uh, hopefully, no military gains for Hamas, nothing to show for their casualties, but we will see devastation and damage terrorist infrastructure and civilian infrastructure in Gaza. You know, um, lots of points to pick up on, but so we go step by step. Jonathan, maybe tell us why Hamas decided at this particular moment, this year, May of this year, now's the time for a fourth round of fighting against Israel. And a number of things set that off. And, and actually, I've seen different interpretations of what's your interpretation, what's in the book on this. Sure. Well, first of all, I'll just add that in addition to what Jonathan just said, in terms of the names, yeah. um, uh, you know, I, I think it's a clear sign that Israelis are watching Game of Thrones um, <laughs> and, and that that was clearly what was inspiring, at least um, the name of their their side of the operation. Um, <laughs> the Guardian well, of the Walls. Is <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, but, you know, look, the, the the timing of this also, I think, tracks back to how Hamas named this, right? To, to claim that they're defending Jerusalem. You know, you'll recall that there was a lot of talk uh, at the time in the lead up to the war and even for the first days after the war. And I addressed this very early on in the book that a lot of journalists were blaming the entire thing on an Israeli court decision relating to a real estate dispute in the East Jerusalem neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, uh, that there were a handful of Palestinian Arabs that were about to be evicted, and, um, and that it was Israel's uh, provocative actions that led to this war. Uh, of course, what was not noted was that this was a dispute that was almost a century old, that we're talking about uh, Jewish families that had owned this property and then they were kicked out of that property when it was Jordanian occupation of Jerusalem. And then uh, when Israel took it over again after 1967, they allowed these people to live in these homes and a legal dispute ensued. And it took decades to reach a point where a decision was almost made and that this was purportedly the cause the singular cause of the conflict in May of 2021. I think that's a ridiculous interpretation of history because of course, at the end of the day, it's rockets and bullets that cause conflict, not a looming legal challenge in court in a legitimate legal system. It was a very odd interpretation of events. A more logical uh, interpretation of, of, of those events would point to the cancellation of the Palestinian elections that had occurred the month before. Uh, Hamas was set to take part in those elections with the blessing of the Biden administration. And Cliff, you and I were on a phone call with a Biden administration official who insisted that, oh, there's no risk here, it's gonna be fine. And by the way, who is America to say who should take part in Palestinian elections in the first place? 
But we all knew that that would lead to disaster, that it would lead to Hamas gaining a foothold in the Palestinian Authority. We recommended it against it. And in the end, the Biden administration agreed as well, prompted Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, to cancel those elections at the last minute. And I think it's fair to say now in retrospect that Hamas was furious and that they decided that what they could not win by way of the ballot box, they would try to win in the battle for hearts and minds, which for them means waging war against Israel. In, in that sense, the war was against Israel, but one of the, the, a major target would be Fatah and the Palestinian Authority and Mahmoud Abbas. That's true? Yes, yes. I think they wanted to regain um, the sort of position of primacy that I think they've always thought they should have. And so a war against Israel uh, was an opportunity for them to thrust themselves into the limelight and to demonstrate that they were fighting against Israel and fighting for Palestinian rights um, at the expense of Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority. And let me ask you again one more thing, if you were back, the, the Colonel. The other th theory you saw in some of the press was that this was a battle that Hamas was waging to protect Al-Aqsa. Correct. And again, this came from the Sheikh Jarrah thing primarily, although also this was during Ramadan. So there were restrictions on those that could uh, ascend onto the Temple Mount, as Israel has always had those in place. Um, but we also saw during this time, it was also Jerusalem Day, it was the day in which Israelis uh, celebrate the unification of Jerusalem. And there were Palestinians on the Temple Mount that had stockpiled rocks and were you know, uh, essentially um, engaging in, in minor insurrections. The Israelis responded as they would in, in any circumstance like that. And uh, the tension mounted across the board. So it was elections. It was Ramadan. It was Jerusalem. It was Sheikh Jarrah. But this idea of a single point of failure stemming from a legal dispute was a bit ridiculous and, and really one of the first signs to me that the coverage was going to be ridiculous during this war. And, and Colonel, so you're trying to explain to these foreign journalists the truth of this situation and and they're saying, what? No, you're wrong. The Israelis are evicting Palestinians from their homes. They are taking over and restricting the right to pray on Al-Aqsa. They're changing the status that we have maintained. That's, is, is, that, is that what it's like as you try to make a simple explanation of what's going on? They're not believing you? Yeah, that's definitely what they wrote and reported. But, you know, with retro perspective, I'd, I'd offer a few lessons learned or lessons identified. I don't think that they've been learned, but identified. Uh, Jonathan or Dr. Chanzer, you, you speak about the, uh, the, the, the running up, the month before the, uh, the actual fighting started. And uh, media-wise, if we analyze it, and I analyzed it with great frustration as it was happening, our voice, the Israeli voice was missing. And in terms of uh, framing and shaping a narrative, uh, that was happening. And the ones that were framing and shaping the narrative and were feeding the international media the, uh, the information that they wanted were Hamas, not Israel. And the fact that the international press started covering the fighting, 
Yeah, sure. They covered the fire towards Jerusalem and they definitely mentioned it in the coverage, but they had the framing that had been fed to them and it corresponded very well with their general outlook on life and their beliefs and their politics regarding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and who is the strong side and who is the underdog. And it, fit, it fitted very nicely for most of the international media, specifically the American media overall, not everybody, but in a generalization. And I'd say that they had this handed to them and they accepted it. And that was the coverage. And one of uh, my biggest challenges, the people who uh, I work with and, and, and uh, are responsible for, one of our biggest challenges was to try and say, well, we're not saying that this didn't happen, but this isn't the story. The story is that they fired rockets at our capital. Now, you have been fed and you're listening closely to what Hamas has been saying. And you're taking the story that Hamas has, the, the yarn that Hamas has spun. And that's, that is the story. And it took us a lot of work to try to reshape that. But I will say, in retro perspective, that I think Israel should have done a much better job at getting our message out. And here I'm not speaking about the IDF, conveniently, obviously. I'm speaking about the state of Israel getting our message out and saying real estate and, and really telling the story of what's going on and why Hamas our adversary, our enemy, is doing what they're doing. We didn't do that. And, and we paid a price because in any military confrontation that we have with any of our enemies, and especially so with Palestinians, we will face an uphill struggle against pretty much a biased media. Almost never, almost doesn't even really matter what the, what the situation on the ground is. We will face an uphill battle. We can make it better or we can make it worse. And in this case, we didn't do the prep work well enough. And I think that, Jonathan, you speak about the biased and slanted coverage. Part of it is due to that as well. And I hope that my successor and that others who are now in the other positions in Israel uh, will do a much better job at getting that message out before violence starts. Go ahead, John. You know, it's interesting, Jonathan, that, that you say that. Um, you know, after I wrote the first draft of the book, I, I had an opportunity to go uh, to Israel with FTD CEO Mark Dubowitz, and we went around and we talked to a number of senior officials within the military uh, at the Kiriya, uh on the Gaza border as well. And one of the things that I walked away with the impression that I got, and and this is, I think, you know, we always hear about the failings of Israel to explain itself during times of conflict. This is not new, right? This is something that we've been hearing about for a very long time. And it, I, I heard one official tell me point blank, and, and I never heard this before really, that when conflicts erupt, the, the state of Israel is, you know, certainly would like to win hearts and minds um, and, and to begin to change some of the coverage. But a lot of the messaging is in fact directed to Israel's enemies on its other borders to make it clear that Israel is not weak, that Israel is not afraid of a fight, that Israel will vanquish its enemies. And that has always been the tone and tenor of the Israeli media response, right? What they're trying to do is to prevent a multi-front conflict at all costs. And they sometimes forget that maybe the international community would like to hear about the softer side of Israel, 
Um, and, and that may be why you see the slanted response from the Israeli government. I'll add to that, and I say that there are two main audiences, one being the domestic, the Israeli audience, where the message that the IDF uh, wishes to convey is one of uh, responsibility, of, um, of capability, and of resolve, and intention to defend, and capability to defend, and to make our enemies pay a heavy price uh, for attacking uh, our civilians. That's one message. And the key and number one audience is the Israeli domestic audience. And very correctly, as you point out, the second audience is our enemies, whether it is uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza or Hezbollah in Lebanon or their Iranian masters, wherever they're hiding, uh, or uh, Iraqis or Syrians. Uh, true, when the IDF, uh, when the chief of staff decided to take down high uh, visibility targets, and to do so very quickly, he wasn't only uh, sending a message to Hamas, and he wasn't only interested in getting the message across to the Islamic Jihad that they're going to uh, forfeit important infrastructure if they continue firing rockets at our civilians. For him and for many other Israeli commanders, it's very clear that when uh, we fight against one terrorist organization, all of the others are looking close and watching and uh, testing the waters and to see if there's weakness or to see if there's any possibility if perhaps for them to gain anything and learning lessons for the future. What goes missing, you say very correctly, and I agree 100%, is what about the world? What about the, uh, what about the West? Uh, I can be unpolitically correct and say, never mind the world. What about Western Europe and the US? What about them? Do they get the message that they uh, that Israel should be uh, providing? Do we speak about how we limit the use of force? Do we speak about the constraint? Do we speak about how we are defending our civilians against uh, the amazing military threats that we face, the barrages, the rockets, the tunnels, the anti-tank missiles? Hardly. The message that comes out from Israel is one of strength, of deterrence, and uh, it, it's much more a military message than it is a diplomatic one. And uh, speaking about enemies, that, that may be a good message. My point of view is uh, obviously the, uh, the international point of view, and I find it very uh, lacking. And uh, I think that many of the challenges that we face today and will continue to face uh, also stem from this definition of priorities. And it is a, a, a definition of priorities within Israel, not only the IDF. I want to move on to other topics. Before I do, there's one other point I want you to address, Colonel, on this. Anybody in our audience who's read the Israeli journal, journalist Mati Friedman knows this. If you see a piece in the New York Times or The Guardian that is egregiously misrepresenting history or facts or what you said, you'll call the reporter up and you'll say how disappointed you are with them and ask them to come and have a cup of coffee with you and discuss it. If Hamas sees something they don't like, truthful or untruthful, they don't handle it quite the way you do, do they? They don't. And I know this from uh, personal, uh, firsthand. Um, of stories that were written in Gaza by stringers or actual correspondents, journalists, 
that were based inside Gaza, Gazans that work for AP, Reuters, The Times, uh, BBC. They st still have personnel inside Gaza. They are under immense direct physical and psychological pressure and terror by Hamas very effectively um, are that, that Hamas are very effectively controlling what goes out from Gaza, where the uh, agency photographers take pictures, what they say, what they don't say, where they place their cameras. And, you know, the, the, the best way to prove it is just look at the thousands, if not tens of thousands of pictures coming out of Gaza during this highly televised and highly uh, photographed conflict. You won't see a single launch pad, a single launch site. You will not see it on AP, Reuters, BBC, CNN, Sky. Never, ever will they show where they're firing from. And there were a few brave correspondents who, after the uh, uh, fighting, went in and presented questions to Mahmoud Azahar and a few others and said, you know, you're committing war crimes and you're firing from, uh, uh, from populated areas. The reporters who did that were reporters who don't live in Gaza. Their stringers in Gaza would never do it because they know that the minute they do that, next day or a few minutes after, their family's in trouble and they are in trouble. And that's controlling the narrative and that's controlling the information that comes out from Gaza. And that's what the world sees. 100%. I, I can't agree with you more. I mean, you know, and, and you, you start to ask yourself why, you know, Israel was, was uh, cast as the aggressor. Well, you could see what Israel bombed. You could see the result. They, you don't, you never saw the people who were firing the rockets. You didn't see, you know, you didn't see pictures of Hamas guys popping out of tunnels. It was extremely rare. And by the way, it didn't, it, it didn't make it any easier that when Israel would release this information, it was usually midi, uh, military video, you know, usually taken from above by a drone. So it made it very clear that Israel had kind of penetrated Gaza and airspace. And it really made it look like Israel was dominating this conflict, when, of course, I think we can now say with certainty that when you fire 4,000 rockets into civilian areas, you're probably the aggressor. Um, there's a lot of topics I want to get to in the time we have left, so try to be succinct. But let's start with this one. Uh, an interesting part of this conflict was the ground assault that didn't happen. Jonathan, why don't you explain what I'm talking about? Go well, ahead. Th this was Dr. Shanzer. Yeah, this was this is kind of what I talked about in the beginning, that there was a moment where uh, the IDF tweeted uh, that there were going to be ground forces, that there were ground forces in Gaza. It was a big surprise because everybody kind of knew that first Bibi Netanyahu uh, was somewhat phobic of a ground war. And um, but really, it was a turning point in the war. It was at that moment that Hamas began to insert its top commando fighters into what is now commonly known as its metro system of tunnels. And uh, within minutes after that, um, IDF strikes began uh, taking out chunks of this metro system and also taking out some of these Iranian trained commandos. It was uh, described by many in the US media as an Israeli information operation. And our guest today, uh, Colonel Conricus, was the guy that they all pointed a finger at, that it, they blamed him for, um, for being misled. Uh, and they blamed him for what was ultimately, in many ways, erroneous coverage of, uh, of that moment during the war. Well, talk about that, Colonel, because look, 
deception in warfare is not a new concept. I think it goes back at least to Sun Tzu. Um, to what extent, well, tell us what you're willing to tell us about that episode. I guess I'll just say that. Definitely an interesting time. And what, uh, as you say very correctly, and I said this, I think it was uh, CNN the day after. Um, I think it was with Slater. And uh, I said, yeah, uh, I made a mistake. And uh, there was a lot of conflicting information. I understood that our forces had indeed crossed the fence and were indeed maneuvering. When, in fact, at the time when I said that, they had not. And I simply had the wrong uh, information at hand. And that is the information that uh, we tweeted. And that is then what a lot of the international media, not all of them, but a lot of the international media uh, reported. But let me put things into context in terms of um, the so-called deception. If the IDF wants to deceive Hamas and Islamic Jihad terrorists, it will not be by using uh, or tricking or abusing AP, Reuters, Wall Street Journal, and whatnot. Uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad and Hezbollah and many other terrorists, they know all too well that their best source of intelligence, not information, but real combat intelligence, is none other than Israeli media. Uh, Channel 13, Channel 12, 11, especially 13, their uh, uh, southern correspondent, but not only him, they are on the ground reporting reality, uh, streaming live, and it is very, very convenient for them, Hamas and Islamic Jihad in this case, to simply listen to them. So if uh, the IDF had been trying to deceive the uh, uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad, using international media would have been the last thing to, to, to think of in terms of media, because that is not what the target audience uh, bases its perception and uh, uh, reality on. Uh, so I know that, you know, it, I, I think this also connects a lot to the, uh, I'd say, the uh, feeling of self-importance that many correspondents uh, and many journalists have, uh, and maybe I'd say even a bit of righteousness. And uh, maybe some people were offended by having uh, the wrong information. And at a conversation with correspondents a few hours after, I was very forthcoming and I told them, listen, I have been doing this now for four years uh, with uh, many of your predecessors and your predecessors' predecessors. Never ever has anybody uh, blamed me for being untruthful. They may not have always liked what I've had to say, but I have never been blamed to be untruthful. And I wasn't untruthful then. I had the wrong information and I apologize professionally for giving that out. Did I, was I trying to deceive? Was the IDF trying to deceive? No, I was not. And uh, it just, you know, it was a good story. It was a good story because many reporters and the media, they like to write about themselves. They like to uh, inflate the role that they have in operations. And it was a novel thing, an interesting story. But when you look at it, you know, really on the ground, to uh, for terrorists, like uh, Jonathan said, for Hamas operatives to get inside the tunnels uh, and to deploy there, that takes a few minutes. That takes more than half an hour. If you look at the time and space, 
the moment that that tweet was issued was uh, just a few, not, not so far from when we started uh, bombing the area. And uh, uh, looking at that, you can understand that, that if that was intended to cause Hamas to get down to tunnels, that wasn't the relevant time to be doing it. And that's another piece of information, really a technical one, but that underscores that this was uh, related to fog of war, uh, too many hours without sleep and conflicting information uh, that unfortunately uh, gave uh, the international media or many parts of the international media a story that they were very happy to uh, continue to, um, uh, to cover and to analyze. You know, the, I want to get into this couple more subjects in the time we have left in this podcast. Uh, John, the people who, who who ask, okay, this is the fourth war that Israel has had to fight against Hamas. Shouldn't Israel, at a certain point, go in and defeat Hamas once and for all? What's isn't it? Isn't it, do they want how many more of these wars do they want, or is that the is that the idea that you mow the lawn, you don't attempt to go in and totally re-landscape the territory. I think there's um, a phobia in Israel uh, of, of doing exactly what you've just described. The idea of um, leaving troops indefinitely, I mean, Jonathan mentioned that he was fighting in, in, Lebanon, in Southern Lebanon, and they, they kind of, they called that the war without name, uh, where there was just a permanent presence of Israeli soldiers it wasn't fully a, a you know what would be described as an occupation. It, it just felt like a an asymmetric conflict that dragged on to no end. And I think the fear is putting Israeli troops back into Gaza and having to fight a war against an Iranian-backed proxy uh, with no real goal in sight. Because you know, and, and this was an interesting thing that I heard also from uh, senior Israeli officials. I mean, they they call um, Gaza a lost province. Nobody wants it. Right. I mean, it was once under Egyptian control. They don't want it. The Palestinian Authority won't go back into it. The Israelis don't want it. I mean, there is really nobody who actually wants this other than Iran by proxy. I'm not even sure Hamas wants it. Um, it's a headache, you know, just to to try to keep food coming in and logistically to keep uh, you know the lights on. So the idea that Israel should go in and take care of business once and for all you know, it's nice to say that as something that is possible, uh, but really it's not a feasible outcome from the Israeli perspective. And so, you know, we limp along. This was the fourth war. There will be a fifth. There's no doubt. And every time, and I think Jonathan can probably attest to this, every time there's another conflict, the Israelis see that Hamas has had an opportunity to build up its uh, capabilities further than the one before, whether it's more accurate rockets, rockets that, that go deeper into Israel, uh, you know, more sophisticated tunnels. This time around, we saw um, uh, we saw drones in the air, but also underwater drones as well. All of this is due to Iranian assistance. And the question is, what should Israel do about it short of utter de devastation? And this leads, Colonel, to my next to last question, because there's one more I, I have to get into the guy. My next to last question is this. As as unpleasant as this conflict was, Israelis have to imagine the possibility that from Lebanon, where there are 150,000 missiles, those could be launched at the same time as Hamas, that from Syria, where the Iranians have been trying to set up another front, there could be missiles launched. In other words, as bad as this was, Israeli strategists and 
The IDF have to imagine the possibility that the missiles could be coming in from many directions simultaneously, and that's what they will have to fight. And they have to under, think about Iran is the puppeteer pulling the strings. Did we let them off when this happens, or do we go directly to the puppeteer? And uh, that's a huge <laughs> subject, but I'm asking you to very succinctly address it, and then I'll get to my exit question. I, I agree with almost everything you said. Uh, I was uh, stupid enough to tell my daughter, they spent a few nights in uh, shelter. We live in Kfar Saba, central Israel, a few miles northeast of Tel Aviv. And they spent, I think, five or six nights in uh, bomb shelters um, for the first time in their lives, unlike Israelis in uh, Zderot, Beersheva, Ashkelon, uh, who unfortunately, uh, sadly, are used to it. Uh, and I told her, listen, this, is, this, was, uh, this was just the promo. This is just a small, very small uh, presentation of capabilities that the bad guys have uh, in simplistic terms. And uh, I think that um, one of the biggest challenges that the IDF faces for the, again, speaking of audiences, the domestic audience, I think that now after this, this last conflict in Gaza, people get it a bit more because many people have been saying this, that, well, you know, this, was, this wasn't nice, this was, this was horrible, and we had civilian casualties, more than 10 Israelis died, and, and there was damage, etc. But, you know, the Iron Dome did the job. Uh, everybody knows that when, if all of the terrorist organizations that are within striking range of Israel, if they decide... Uh, to go uh, uh, to go all the way and fire rockets and uh, risk the Israeli re retaliation that will come and which will be furious, then they can rain down death and destruction on Israel. Because at the current situation, the Iron Dome batteries won't be able to intercept at all the same rate, and we'll have to focus only on uh, core uh, infrastructure of the state. And Israeli civilians will have only uh, 30 centimeters of reinforced concrete to between them and uh, and warheads raining in on Israel. So that is very sombering and it's uh, frightening to to think about it. You know, as as somebody who lives here and uh, I want to see my uh, great grandchildren uh, uh, succeed me in Israel and uh, in the Zionist dream that we have. But it is a a daunting uh, future that we may have ahead of us. Uh, specifically with the fact that there are so many terrorist organizations with so many effective weapons at our door doorstep. Um, and what I can say that we will be doing is, again, going back to what I said in the beginning of how we started this campaign with intense, massive standoff fire and bombardments on different types of targets, including dual-use targets, here again, the message was supposed to resonate clearly enough to Hassan Asala and to uh, other terrorists in the region who were paying attention. Yes, we know that you can strike us, but if you strike us, you will be like Hassan Asala in 2006, and people will be asking you, why did you bring destruction on Lebanon, Syria, Gaza, or wherever it is that you decided to fire on Israel from? Uh, so it's more about really a... Unfortunately, we're still at the very basic level of, uh, of deterrence by firepower. We're not yet at the uh, continuation of, uh, of that dialogue with, uh, with other means, to use uh, Clausewitz uh, parlance. 
and uh, that's where where we see we, where we see the situation as it is now. Okay, and lots of topics we haven't discussed, but just one more question: be as brief as you can, but I do want to get it in. Jonathan, uh, the, uh, the 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 Gaza conflict, twenty twenty one, this eleven day war. Who won? You know, look from from my perspective, Israel Israel won militarily. It, it I think achieved all of its uh, military objectives. It had what is commonly known as a target bank uh, of pre-approved legal targets. They destroyed those. They destroyed the Al Jala Tower, which had a, uh, a signals intelligence operation designed to jam Iron Dome. Um, it, it destroyed the metro system, which we've talked about, this uh, labyrinth of tunnels. Um, and it set back Hamas, uh, I, don't know, I don't know if I can say significantly, but it set them back enough. Uh, it mowed the lawn and uh, it made it more difficult for, uh, for Hamas to operate. I think that's that's the good news. And by the way, the Israeli casualties and the Israeli damage was limited. Um, and by the way, I would say a measure of success also is the limited number of casualties on the other side. Um, and I don't know many other militaries that think in those terms, but the fact that there were you know roughly 200 people that were killed in the entire 11 days of conflict with the amount of ordinance that was um, that was fired was really unthinkable in, in terms of modern warfare. So in many ways, it was a, a success. The problem is, is that Hamas regained the narrative and that Hamas uh, always declares victory by losing. Um, this is what happens time and again, that even though they look around and, you know, the Gaza city is, a, is in rubble, they still say, well, we're still standing, we're still here, our leadership is still alive, and therefore we're going to live to fight another day on behalf of the Palestinian cause. Of course, I would dispute that it's the Palestinian cause. I would say at this point, it's the Iranian cause or the Turkish cause or the Qatari cause, because those are the patrons and we didn't even get into that today. Uh, but at any rate, both sides were able to declare victory, which is unfortunate because I think every time that happens, it means that we're, uh, we're setting things up for the next round. And as I ended in my book, I noted that we will see round five, unfortunately, and it will probably be tougher and messier and uglier than the war that we just saw. I think I agree on almost everything. I'll add that um, like, like a, I'm a small student of military history in the Middle East, in uh, many of our last conflicts, we do well on the battlefield, but we don't tie the ends in terms of the policy and the diplomacy and everything that needs to happen after in order to translate military activity into uh, something uh, that we can call uh, long-term achievement. Uh, and uh, I think that's what's lacking here as well. But it's very, I mean, it's easy to say, but it's extremely difficult to do any of that with a terrorist organization that has the charter, which is very similar to ISIS, perhaps a little bit less flamboyant, but the Hamas charter isn't very different to ISIS. So at the end of the day, I think that for the foreseeable future, as long as Hamas is in power in Gaza, we will be uh, in this type of reality and we'll be mowing the lawn. It'll be like a... Uh, uh, a, a, a kind of uh, an attempt to uh, to balance the humanitarian suffering and the humanitarian tension inside Gaza as a way of letting off steam 
and lowering tensions, but then uh, trying to limit Hamas from gains and developments in the future. And unfortunately, pessimistically, pessimistically I also think that in the coming time, uh, we will see a fifth engagement with uh, Hamas. What I know, even though I'm not in a uh, uh, position anymore, I think that the first day of the fifth engagement will be even more violent on both sides, Israeli and Hamas and Islamic Jihad, than what we saw in 11 or 12 days of fighting in, uh, in, in 2021. And that is, um, again, a, a very pessimistic outlook, unfortunately. But that's the issue. When you're dealing with terrorist organizations at your doorstep, very little room for diplomacy and uh, deal-making. Well, a fascinating discussion. So many more topics we could get into to be continued for sure. For now, Jonathan Chanzer, congratulations on your new book. Uh, very important to set the record straight. And I think you've, you've done that remarkably well. Colonel, great to talk to you. I always learn uh, your analysis and your candor are very much appreciated. So thanks very much. And thanks to everybody who has joined us today here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.